Well, it's been a little bit of a nippy week, right? And we just get to look forward to some amazing weather coming up. But there are people all over Chicagoland, all over even places colder than us, all right, a little bit north of us, and, and they're gathering together to worship and to hear from God and to praise our God. Well, you know, the picture up on front, we, we've got some junior hires that are away on retreat, And I'm going to be praying for them in just a moment. And I just thought it would be crazy for me not to at least show their faces. And and as we pray for all these different churches and all these different ministries that are going on all over, I want to especially focus on our junior hires and their staff. That God might do something huge in their lives. That they come back absolutely transformed. Because they understand who their God is and what grace is all about. You know, we are on a journey. And if you've been part of our fellowship, we have been reading and learning about the God of the Bible. And to help us stay focused, we've been going through a book called The Story which is actually the scriptures in the NIV version, and we're up to about chapter 12 right now. But as we open up the Bible, the God of the Bible we find is loving and is faithful and is just. We're sometimes confused by God's actions. We're puzzled by how God works. We would like all of us answers. But sometimes they don't come. But as we spend time with our God, with our Heavenly Father, we learn who He is a little bit more. And we understand who He is, and we're beginning to be drawn to Him more and more and more. You remember that God created every one of us with relationship in mind. And it started a long time ago in a garden. But way back, even in a perfect environment, in this garden... Man thought, well, I can do it better than God. And so they rebelled, and that's called sin. They did their own thing and therefore broke a relationship with the Almighty God, which literally broke God's heart. The Bible continually tells this story of a God who desires deeply to run after, and to redeem, and to restore this relationship. God has faithfully, over the centuries, have raised up leaders to point us back to him. And so far, we've looked at Moses, and we've looked at Joshua, and we've looked at Samuel. We've spent some time looking at Israel's first king, whose name was Saul. And we found out that Saul really looked like a king, head and shoulders above everyone. And if someone is going to choose a king, they would look at Saul and say, he's he's the guy. Well, the problem was, is that kings, good kings, don't always look good on the inside, even if they look good on the outside. Last week, we were introduced to the second king of Israel, and his name is David. He was a man that was very different than Saul. Saul is known literally not only for his good looks, but also for his partial disobedience, all right? He sort of obeyed God, sort of, most of the time. At least in our culture, we would look at that and say, Saul was pretty good. He's a pretty good guy. He listened to God like most of the time. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that Saul didn't understand sin, didn't understand how devastating it is, didn't understand that a broken relationship with God is disastrous. So along comes David 
who is a warrior, a poet, a man after God's own heart. Someone that when God looked down at David, he smiled. It was an amazing lesson last week. Not because of the speaker, but because of what God was teaching us about this young 17-year-old who spent time with God and trusted God and worshipped God fanatically. He loved God and served Him. Well, he was a leader who put God first, who loved and followed God. But, there's always those buts sometimes, huh? But, but, David was not a perfect man. One day, with his generals gone to war, the king was confronted by an internal foe as intense as any enemy he faced on the battlefield. Let's pray before we focus on the trials of this king. Oh, Father, we do come before you. We are so grateful for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We are saddened at times, Lord, And we realize how casually we treat disobedience. Lord, if we could see you just a little clearer today, if we could understand how loving and gracious, but how fierce you also are. Lord, we know that you only want the best for us. We do but we have been deceived. We pray, Father, not only for all of the different churches in the area who have been teaching your word and praising your name. Would you encourage these saints saints, and strengthen them and give them the ability to be salt and light in our world so that people are pushed and pointed to you, God, We pray especially for our junior high team, our staff, and our kids. As they've spent time together in community, but more than that, spent time looking at who you are. Would you take these young lives and would you change them? And would you encourage them? And would you bring them back, Father, stronger and ready for any assignment that you've given them? Today, Father, my prayer is that your messenger would not get in the way. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us clearly. That your word would powerfully encourage and convict. And that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Nothing's worse than getting caught. So, well, Rick, I really don't get... Whoa, 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 come on. If I say that one sentence, there's one incident in my life that it, it just leaps right out of the pages. Back when I was dating my dear wife, Sharon, she lived in Berwyn. I lived in the northwest side of Chicago. So it was a never, ever an easy trip to get to her house. Best case scenario, 45 minutes, and often that wasn't the best case. But I remember it was one evening, and she was still in high school, and I was, (laughs) yes, very mature and in college. And I just wanted to see her that night, and it was so important. And for some reason, I got permission got into the family country squire. Oh, yeah, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That fine station wagon with the authentic wood paneling on the side. Right? Oh, baby, that was the hot car to take anybody out in. I'm letting you know. Well, we drove down, and I, for some reason, I'm not sure what happened. Maybe it was lousy weather, but I normally didn't go this way. But I was going south on Harlem. 
And I came to 26th Street, just about where Berwyn is. I turned left on 26th Street, and folks, I am blocks away from Sharon's house at this time. I am flying. Do you get that? Flying. The speed limit is 25 miles an hour. But I have bliss on my mind. I have my wife. Well, she's not my wife yet. But oh, oh, that's all I could think of. And there's this hill right before I turn on the Grove Avenue. And I come meandering over that hill. And there's a squad car sitting right at the bottom of that hill. As soon as I went over the hill, I went, I'm dead. I didn't even make it to his car and the lights were on. And all I did was just pull right over. I I, I was like, what's the use at this moment? The guy pulls behind me, gets out of his car, and he's laughing. Now, I'm a little upset at this whole moment, you know. And he walks up to me, first words, that was easy. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I kind of thought. uh, uh, How fast were you going? I said, 38. He goes, no, 39. Okay, okay. And you sit there. Not a thing you can do. Hopefully, would he be merciful? No. Never, never found a kind, merciful officer in my life, except for one sitting right here in our congregation, which I'm sure is very kind and merciful at all times. But you know the truth is, I want everyone to be kind and merciful when I'm wrong. Right? Isn't that Right? I mean, seriously, if I was going 25 miles an hour, he would have been really merciful. Hi. Not here. Not here. You know, we love to paint outside the lines, don't we? We love to justify our actions. Maybe because it's unfair. Now, really, 25 miles an hour. I mean, a tortoise can go faster than 25 miles an hour. I am sure I can keep complete control of this fine vehicle at 30 or 35 or whatever. All right. I can justify it. I can rationalize my rebellion all I want. Hey, it was only a couple blocks. What's the big deal? I'm late. Sometimes we deceive ourselves, thinking it's okay as long as we don't get caught and we don't hurt anyone. Success and power and position and money sometimes deceive us and make us believe we're above the law, right? We all know of politicians, or we know of CEOs, or we know of even pastors that think, well, they're above the law. They, they don't need to actually follow all the rules. But let me just say this. None of us on this planet are above God's laws. Because God is omniscient. Big word just says he knows everything. Sees everything. He's holy. And he's just. And because of all those things, when we sin, when we disobey, when we rebel, and in some cases, we like to tell our kids, when you make bad choices, folks, bad choices really is sin for the most part, you know. Like, you had a choice to obey me or a choice not to obey me. It's called wrong. And so sometimes we gloss it over. You know, Lord, I made a bad choice today. And God says, yeah. You did. And you casually looked at the sin. You casually disobeyed me. And right now, our relationship is severed. Our fellowship. You don't understand this. You see, we don't break God's laws. God's laws break us. Now again, in, back in Numbers chapter 32, it's not a very famous passage, but realistically, I'd like to just give you a quick little background here. Moses is taking, well, all of 
Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But there are two tribes. There were 12 in all, but two tribes, Reuben and Gad. And Reuben and Gad said, you know what, Moses? We want to stay on this side of the Jordan, the east side. We don't want to go across the Jordan. We'll go with you. We'll help conquer the land. But when we're all done, we want to come back here and settle. And Moses just simply said this to those leaders. You know what? If that's true, that's cool. We need you to help conquer the land. And when everything is finished, you can come back on this side of Jordan because you have so much livestock, you can stay here. But then he says in Numbers 32, 23, But if you fail to keep your word, then you have sinned against the Lord. Okay. And you may be sure that your sin will find you out. You think you may leave early. You think that you don't have to keep exactly your word in this situation. I just want you to know. It's God who's going to take care of it. And sometimes we flip that verse out, especially at our kids all the time. Be sure your sin will find you out. It's true. But we kind of throw it out as kind of a, you better listen. I think as we go on, we're going to find out that just using God, God will be displeased. God will be, well, If we don't know God, we don't fear God, we don't really care a whole lot about God, well, disobeying God is not such a big deal. And so sometimes we will put the cart before the horse. And it's it's really difficult when we don't understand why people don't listen or obey or don't fear God or don't respond to sin ruthlessly. Well, it's because they don't know God. And we're going to look more and more about that. Well, as you know, even if you are not an avid Bible reader, King David, King David, a man after God's own heart, got caught. And today, there are some huge lessons here. So let's look at this next chapter of David's life. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, the Scriptures tell us that David chose what is comfortable rather than what is right. Let's read just the first verse. 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amalekites. And he destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now really, if you just even look at this, it's, it doesn't seem too bad, right? The, the king is, you know, he's got all authority. He's got some great generals. Why don't you go out and do the fighting? I'm just going to lay back here. I'm going to relax a little bit. It's a lot more comfortable here in the palace, I'm letting you know, than out in the battlefield. So I think I'm going to choose comfort here. That's all. And no one would blame him. No one would say, hey, you're really wrong. You're the king. You should be out there. Now the understanding is, yes, the king actually should be out leading his troops at this time. But David chose to stay back. And it looked rather innocent. It looked innocent until verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. He looked over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. He had just, she had just completed the purification rites that time. Wow. 
David acted on his God-given powerful desires. No doubt about it. But his actions were offensive to God. So his laziness at this time, his stroll on a roof, nothing immoral or wrong about that, but he looked. And within his sight, there was an unusually beautiful woman taking a bath. Now, I suppose if he noticed that, although I just find it really hard to believe he's been on his roof before, he knows where the bathtub is, I, I just, come on. Why go on the roof? Why do this? But he did. And he was caught. And this man of God, whether he thought he could get away with it, not even sure of all the situation, but he sent for her. And as you know, Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. If you read through the story in chapter 12, it's really unbelievably fast how this happens. And the story goes very quickly. Oh, okay, okay, what am I going to do? He sends word to the front lines and says, bring Uriah back. I want to learn of the war. So Uriah comes back, the husband of Bathsheba, and David is very kind to him. Hey, how's it going on the battlefield? What's going on over here? And he's learning all these things. And he says, hey, we're done for the night. Why don't you go on home to your wife? And you know how the story goes. Uriah couldn't go and wine and dine his wife. All of the soldiers were out. All of his men were out there fighting. He slept in the doorway. David noticed that. Try number one didn't work very well. Let's do it again. He brings him back, gives him a feast, literally makes him drunk, and says, hey, why don't you go back to your wife? This is my plan. This is how I'm going to fix all of the problems. He goes back, and this man of integrity, again, sleeps in the doorway. David sees it, then hands him a letter and says, hey, give this to the commander. Basically, he just said this. Put Uriah in the heat of the battle, and at the right time, pull all the men, and just let Uriah stand up there and fight the battle himself. And he will die. And that's exactly what happened. The scriptures tell us that David worked hard on this cover-up story. He knew he was wrong, but he could outsmart God at this moment. You know, the way the story is told, to me, both seemed to get what they wanted. Both of them. The cover-up seemed to work, but God was displeased. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. When the period of mourning was over, in other words, Bathsheba got the news, her husband died, and she literally went into mourning. David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Folks, nothing looked out of the ordinary. Men die in war. David was so kind and gracious to be able to bring Bathsheba into his palace as a wife. The boy eventually was born. No sign of David responding or repenting at all up to this moment. It's at least nine months before a prophet comes. Nathan the prophet 
And let me just remind you again, prophets, especially in this time period, were men who came and heard from God personally and then spoke God's word to people. And so Nathan the prophet, he was always welcomed in David's household. And, and Nathan began to tell David a story. He said, Dave, King David, I would like to share with you a story. Oh, okay, let's hear it. He says, hey, there was this really rich man. He had all kinds of livestock, all kinds of property. He had so many possessions. But he went to a neighbor's house. And this neighbor was rather poor. In fact, only had one lamb. Whoa, that's pretty poor. They named the lamb Wooly. You know that? Wooly. That's a great name for a lamb, right? And little Wooly would, you know, he'd jump around. And and sometimes Wooly would come into the house. And sometimes Wooly would even eat right at the table with them. Wooly was just like part of the family. Well, this really rich dude came. And he said, whoa, uh, let's uh, have a feast. And the poor guy goes, yeah, that sounds pretty good. In fact, let's do this. Let's kill Wooly. Let's eat Wooly. And let's enjoy Wooly. David heard this story. And the scriptures tell he was enraged. He goes, how could anybody think like this? Someone that had so much steal this precious little lamb for his pleasure. Oh, that man should be condemned. And then Nathan looks at David and says, you are that man. Whoa. I don't exactly know everything that happened at that moment. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much more, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord, and done this horrible deed. For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah, Uriah's wife to be your own. Sin means you despise God and His Word. Sin is often looked at as a casual response to maybe not doing all that God wants. We talk about big sins and little sins. We talk about heinous sins and sort of bad sins. We put sins in categories all the time. All of us do. But what Nathan was trying to relate from God Almighty himself was to say, do you understand that when you sin, you despise God, you despise his word, you literally do not treat him with respect. It's totally the opposite of fearing God. You know, parents... Throughout the scriptures, the Bible teaches us to teach our children to fear God. And one of the things that I try to encourage people who are God followers is to continually ask questions, especially of those men and women who are a little bit further ahead of you in the journey, and ask them hard questions. Ask them how they deal with temptation. Ask them, well, how do you rear children? 
In fact, one question I would encourage you to ask, people who are ahead of you on a journey, what do you think I should teach my kids? By the time, remember, every parent has an opportunity, 18, 20, 22, some 49 years, you know, and the kids don't ever seem to leave. But when they leave, when they leave, Hopefully, there are men and women that love God with all their heart. And they listen to God well. And they honor God. That's not always the case, but, but that's the prayer for every godly Christian parent. And if you were to ask them, hey, what should I teach my kids? Well, what I did, I didn't stuff your bulletins with this one, but I did uh, have two handouts, and they're out in our lobby. And what I did is reprint, actually, Pastor John MacArthur's answer to that, and also Dennis and Barbara Rainey's answer to that. Again, those names might not mean much to you, but these are people that I respect tremendously. All right? And if you were to ask them, What do you teach your kids? And it's really cool. Again, every parent, if you want to take one, take it. It's a great thing to kind of talk over as spouses. Or even if you have kids that are grown up and, and out of here, it might be some good discussion to look at. But the number one answer that they give is teach them to fear the Lord. Wow. Number one thing that a parent ought to do, and you will see this, you'll see it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, as Moses talks about this. But fearing God is learned. You don't automatically get up and fear God. Well, what does that mean? I'm just supposed to be really afraid of God? Well, fearing God, part of it is afraid of God. Part of it is that God is so big and God so powerful that when he says something, he has the ability to be able to back it up. Fear can also be you learn who he is so that you respect God so very, very, very much. But I'm afraid one reason we don't teach our kids to fear God is because we don't fear God. We don't fear God. We're casual about what God's Word says in our lives. We pick and choose what we choose to obey. And oftentimes, just like David, we choose comfort over obedience. Because we don't really want the hardships. But what we have to understand is sin is always an offense against God first. Sin is always an offense against God first. Consequences do follow, both natural and divine at times. Many of you know Romans 6.23. And for the wages of sin, for the payment of sin, for the consequences of sin, is death. It's death. It's never life. If you look back in our text, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verse 13, right after David heard this story, this is his response. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is good. This is right. This is exactly what you do. Your first offense. You say, well, that's odd. Didn't he kill Uriah? Isn't Bathsheba? I mean, kind of wrecked her life. What's going on? But no, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, you've chosen not to listen. You are casual. By doing this, your child will die. Say, wait a minute, God. Why are you going to take it out on this little guy? What, what is the problem? 
You know, we are so deceived, and I don't understand all of God's actions, but the truth is, sin never, ever, ever, ever only affects us. It never does. And we think it does. As long as nobody gets hurt. What do you mean nobody gets hurt? When we sin, our loved ones hurt. Our family hurts. Our church hurts. God hurts. You know, Joseph, we just spent a little bit of time on him weeks ago, but he is one of our heroes. And in this same situation, remember, David took over when he was 17 years old, a little bit older at this time in his life, and I get it. He became king at about 30 had more time with God. But Joseph, again, a young man, 17 years old. In Genesis chapter 39, starting at verse 6, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But listen to Joseph's reply. This is why Joseph is a hero. Look, he told her, My master trusts me with everything in this household. No one has more authority than I do, Joseph said. He has held back nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. Listen to this next line. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God, if there ever was a place, different land, different country, no one would ever, ever know, Joe, it's okay, do it. I mean, she's pretty relentless. You better kind of, go ahead. No. Joseph, you don't understand, ma'am, Mrs. Potiphar. I can't do this. I will sin against God. Oh. You see this. Every man fails. But a man after God's own heart responds differently. Literally responds well. Now let me remind you, David did take a while while to respond. Nine months, ten months, eleven months. What was going on? I think God was relentless because he is faithful. But finally God said, I am not letting this go any further. I am sending a messenger to you. He is going to speak my word. He's going to tell you a story. It's going to cut you to the heart and you will see exactly what you did. And when he saw, he responded. Let's look at what repentance and restoration looks like. Because I want you to understand something. So many of us not only are casual about sin, but we're casual about confession. Oh, hey, you know what? I lied to my wife the other day. Oh, well, I'll do better next time. No. Your wife was hurt, yes. You were dishonest, absolutely. But the almighty God, his heart was broken. Look at Psalm 32. And, and again, I, I'm, honestly, I just feel like I want to read Psalm 32. The whole psalm. So listen. This, this is a psalm that, that David writes And understand what he is saying here after he understands that he has offended the Almighty God. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, 
What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, David said, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long, night and day. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, finally I confessed my sins to you. And I stopped hiding thy guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. Ah, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. Ah, you forgave me. Consequences are still there. But God, you have restored my relationship. Look over at Psalm 51. Another psalm that he just pours his heart out after this horrendous revelation that comes to him. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out my sin of stains. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight, Lord. You will be proved right in what you say. I know you only give me this, David says, because I know what is right. And your judgment against me is just. Verse 7, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep me looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me clean heart, oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And in verse 11, as he pours this out, do not banish from me, do not banish me from your presence. Because I want to stop right there. What you don't realize, or me, is that I choose to live apart from God when I sin. And I tell you, I don't want to live apart from God. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the energy. I don't have the ability. I will say wrong things. I will act poorly. I need God desperately. And when I sin, when I think my needs are more important, when I am the one that becomes most important, then I'm on my own. Literally, the next line Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, I know what it feels like to live walking with you, having the Holy Spirit teach me. I know that. I want that. And realistically, I think he just said, you know, for over a year, I know what living apart from you looks like. And you know what? Some of you may be sitting right there knowing that. There may be years, there may be months, there may even be weeks where where you have just flaunted your sin. I know I have. How foolish. How foolish. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You can mark this down in your notes. I'm not going to go there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul writes about, oh, it's up there on the screen. That's even better. Okay, it's right there. Um, But the Apostle Paul goes there and he defines what repentance is all about. Repentance is this, it's not casual, it's owning your sin, it's doing everything you can to rectify the pain that you have caused. It's actions. And let me remind you again, which is so hard, repentance doesn't eliminate consequences. Sin always hurts you and most likely others. It does. You know, now I want to get just really practical. 
and some of you that have been around here have seen this before, but I'd like you to pull out the bulletin insert. It is one of the most important diagrams that I have used over years and years and years with people, and it's helped me understand. And I'd be glad to go into more detail with any of you, but here's the big picture. The big picture is when you come to faith, when you trust Christ as your Savior, and by His grace He saves you, that's the cross, you go into two circles. Now folks, let me just say again, you don't go into two circles. But for the purpose of the diagram, you go into two circles. The top circle, it's called position. You never, ever, ever get out. You are part of God's son, uh, family. You're a son, you're a daughter. You're there. Nothing can ever take you out of God's family. But it's that bottom green circle. That green circle is called the walk circle or your fellowship circle. And what happens is, this is called, uh, again, if we want to talk, the top circle is all about justification. The lower circle is all about sanctification. Okay, for, for some of you like those bigger words. But that, that green circle... What God says is this. It says, this is where I want you to live. I want you to live in a holy state. I want you to live in a pure state. I want you to enjoy my fellowship. Don't listen to the enemy. The enemy says, don't be a holy roller. Be a holy roller. Be one. It's cool. All right? That only means this, is that when you sin, you ruthlessly deal with your sin. You confess your sin. Because according, again... As long as you're in that green circle, you are connected with God. You are part of that vine. You are bearing fruit in season. You are enjoying God's amazing fellowship. You are making a kingdom impact. But as soon as you, as soon as I sin, boom, we get disconnected. We're outside that circle. And that's where David was for well over 9, 10, 11 months. He was outside that circle. And what happens when you're outside that work? You're not connected to the vine. You're not able to pray. All the things you're doing, you're doing in your own energy, in your own flesh, and you're basically surviving. But God says this, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our righteousness. God says, recognize your sin. Come to me. Confess it. It is a burden. This will give you wings. You will go back into that green circle, into the walk circle, into the relationship circle. It's amazing. And so, what do we do practically? Well, when we sin, it's not if, it's when. You confess ruthlessly, immediately recognize the offense that you have made to God and the hurt that you have caused for others. Now, just some practical advice. Some more. Um, In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul talks about not providing for the flesh. Don't walk on your palace roofs. After a lady takes a bath, you're going to have a problem. You will. And men, to be quite honest, there are so many ways to trap you today. doesn't matter. used to be you had to go buy a magazine. Now all you have to do is open your computer. You can look at Bible Gateway. And sometimes they have ads on Bible Gateway. You're going like, what's going on here? Like, I'm reading the scripture over here. That's a nice outfit, ma'am. I'm not so sure that's what I want. How come? The enemy has a stronghold in many areas. And I think, again, being accountable, recognizing that you put in the same situation or, or scenario that David is, you probably will fall. You will. 
it's important that we walk with God. You know, one of my guys' groups, or, or a guys' group that I meet with on Tuesday, we literally were talking through some of, um, I guess, temptations. And one of the things I like to do, at least in the group I'm in, is saying, hey, what things are you not obeying right now? What areas are you just not obeying? God's saying to do something, and, and you're not doing it. And one of the guys said this. In fact, he said he was learning this from his son, from his son. But he said this. He said, when you walk with God, something that was once delightful turns disgusting. And I think I started praying like that. I said, Lord, would all the things that offend you, would I not even dabble, would I not even think, would they turn disgusting to me? Would your presence and would who you are be so unbelievably attractive, something that I desire so badly that nothing else could satisfy me? Oh. You know, we need accountability. We, we talked about DNA groups, um, discipleship, nurturing, accountability. And we're going to talk again and continually looking at how we can do life better together. But one of the things I want to encourage each one of you is that if you're doing life alone, you need a group. You need someone to do life with. You do. Two or three others or, or, or groups of people. And we want to help you do that. And we want to encourage you in that. But you need to take the first step and let us know. Here's my question as we finish up. If God can redeem a man who did something this awful and restore him to a lofty position, my guess is, is that in God's sight, we're all pretty much there. How cool that God would want to forgive and grace us and empower us. And not only that, but give us an assignment and allow us to represent Him in our world. Oh, we look at the upper story, the God stuff, and, and today we need to fear God. And maybe that's something you want to talk with others about. How, how do I do that? How do I learn? And, and you as parents, maybe you want to even help, you know, get some helps. How do you do that? We've got some handouts for you. I want to encourage you to get that. God is omniscient. He does see everything. God is holy. And that's a good thing. But He is just. And for us, the lower story, fear God. Trust God. Walk with God, which simply means dealing ruthlessly with your sin and allowing God's prophet or God's word when God's message is going out receive it receive it let's pray Father thank you thank you for loving us gracing us thank you for pursuing us thank you for giving us an example in David's life where you would not give up on David. I thank you, Father, for David's response. I thank you, Lord, that you gave him grace to deal with the consequences for the rest of his life. God, would we see you more clearly? Would we trust you? Would you change the way we See your word and see obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.